Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Writer's Buzz is a series of free events that bring together Denver's writers and artistic community. Hosted at Lighthouse's Grotto, the format is ever-changing but always fun, encompassing readings, talks, special seminars, and collaborations across disciplines. Come for the program, stick around for the drinks and elbow rubbing with a bunch of creative types. The event is free, and the public is encouraged to attend. The story of a book is one of three core Lighthouse Writer's Workshop Writer's Buzzes. The Story of a Book 3.0 features the following panelists and their books. John Cotter, Under the Small Lights, Linda Ashman, Samantha on a Roll, Seth Brady Tucker, Mormon Boy, and Greg Campbell, Pot Incorporated, Inside Medical Marijuana, America's Most Outlaw Industry. Hi, everybody. Hi. How y'all doing? Good? Every time I come to these events, I'm always surprised that people show up. I just keep thinking in my, my deepest, darkest sort of nightmares that people are going to stop showing up to Lighthouse stuff, but it's wonderful that you're all here, so thank you. Um, my name is Mike Henry. I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Thanks for coming to Story of the Book 3.0, which means it's the third time we've done this. In case you're wondering. Um, I'm very excited. Uh, the story of the book came about... Um, Usually, uh, these ideas come from Andrea Dupree, the program director's co-founder over there. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful person. Um, Usually, they're sort of her brainchild. Sometimes, you know, anywhere between 11 and 3 a.m. And um, we're married, so she wakes me up and says, you know what we should do? Just we need to highlight some of the cool stuff that's happening, and some of the some of the members and some of the faculty members who have books coming out are just out because people want to know how the books came out, and then we can support the faculty members because then their books came out, and then what well, the other thing we could do is we can have like some beer, and that, so yeah, so that's usually how it goes. So, um, so the idea behind the story of the book is to celebrate um, faculty member and member um, successes, their books that have come out recently or are about to be out. Um, all the books here tonight are hot off the press. Pretty much? Yeah, pretty exciting. And just, just so you know, they are available for purchase in the back. Um, and they're discounted. There is no sales tax. Pretty nice, yeah. Yeah, does anybody work for the state? Sorry. <clears throat> but we do have a sales tax license, and we do pay the sales tax. We just don't bill you for it. Yeah, right? Isn't that right? Yeah, I think so. And I keep getting letters from the state, and I, I don't, they don't make any sense to me, so I just <laughs> throw them away. So to get us warmed up, I want to I read you a poem by Thomas Lex. I'm going to give you a choice. You guys can vote. Um, I'm, I can either read a poem entitled Refrigerator, 1957. Yes. <laughs> or An Horatian Notion. Refrigerator. All right, that's, I knew it. Don't give me that philosophy crap. It's Saturday night. Jeez, I'm missing the final four for this. This is a good one. Refrigerator, 1957. More like a vault, you pull the handle out and on the shelves, not a lot. 
And what there is, a boiled potato in a bag, a chicken carcass under foil, looking dispirited, drained, mugged. This is not a place to go in hope or hunger. But just to the right of the middle of the middle door shelf on fire, a lit from within red, heart red, sexual red, wet neon red, shiny red in their liquid, exotic, aloof, slumming in such company, a jar of maraschino cherries. (laughs) Three quarters full, like strippers at a church social. Maraschino cherries, maraschino, the only foreign word I knew. Not once did I see these cherries employed, not in a drink, nor on top of a glob of ice cream, or just pop one in your mouth, not once. The same jar there through an entire childhood of dull dinners, bald meat, pocked peas, and, see above, boiled potatoes. Maybe they came over from the old country, family heirlooms, or were status symbols bought with a piece of the first paycheck from a sweatshop which beat the pig farm in Bohemia, handed down from my grandparents to my parents to be someday mine, then my child's. They were beautiful, and if I never ate one, it was because I knew it might be missed or because I knew it would not be replaced, and because you do not eat that which rips your heart with joy. (laughs) Thanks. That's a pretty good poem. See, he's good. He's going to be a lot of fun. May 5th and 6th. Imprint that stripper, fiery red. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, thank you for being here. Um, thanks to our volunteers. Dan's going to do that for, in a second. Um, and uh, I'm going to get off the stage now. Let me introduce Dan Manzanares. He's our creative curator, and he's going to be our MC for tonight. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Whoa. Um, my name is Dan Manzanares. I'm the creative curator here at Lighthouse. Um, thanks for coming. Uh, I feel good. I feel good tonight. Yeah? Um, I feel good because yesterday was the Mega Million Day. Everyone remembers that, right? And I made out big. I got three out of six, and one of those three was the Mega Million number, right? So you know what that means? So now I can pay back Jenny Taylor, (laughs) who uh, organized the lighthouse pool of 60 uh, numbers, um, all of which I think uh, failed miserably. But... um, (laughs) No, so now we can't, you know, make the tramway from here to Mama's. That's a dream for later days. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm feeling good for that. I'm feeling good also because um, of you know the, the panelists that we have here tonight, um, Seth and John and Linda and Greg. Um, I feel like we're in the, the dream-making business, and you guys are making the dreams happen, and I think that's uh, awesome. 
Um, I want to be there one of these days uh, with my book, and I think a lot of us do as well. And uh, that makes me feel good, just that, that, that the dream is happening. Um, lastly, I feel good because I feel good for my bookshelf. Because after tonight, I get four brand new, awesome, wonderful books to add to my bookshelf. <clears throat> and keeping, I mean, we writers know that keeping the bookshelf happy is key, right? I just anthropomorphized the bookshelf. You guys should too. It's, it's awesome. Um, so uh, now to the story of a book, 3.0. Um, Greg Campbell's here, right? I didn't see Greg. <laughs> okay, there you go, Greg. I haven't met you yet, so I didn't know. I was like, I hope Greg Campbell's here. Um, but you are, which is great. <laughs> yeah, he smoked. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> Greg Campbell. Greg Campbell is an award-winning journalist and author specializing in narrative nonfiction. He has written for The Atlantic, The Economist, WSJ Magazine, The Daily Beast, Paris Match, Foreign Policy, Salon.com, CNNMoney.com, USA Today, The Christian Science Monitor, The San Francisco Chronicle, In These Times, and Amnesty Magazine, among others. It's killing it. <laughs> Lighthouse Blog. And for that, we thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. He is the author of four nonfiction books, including The Road to Kosovo, A Balkan Diary, Blood Diamonds, Tracing the Deadly Path of the World's Most Precious Stones, Flawless, Inside the World's Largest Diamond Heist, and the newly released Pot, Inc., Inside Medical Marijuana, America's Most Outlaw Industry. <clears throat> Blood Diamonds, which won the Colorado Book Award in 2002, served as inspiration for the Oscar-nominated 2006 film Blood Diamond, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Connelly, which I freaking love that movie. I love it. Um, Pot, Inc. chronicles Greg Campbell's journey into do-it-yourself ganjapreneurialism. That wasn't me. That was, that was Greg. <laughs> Um, as he uses his state's permissive medical marijuana laws to learn how to cultivate cannabis in his basement, examining along the way America's often unduly harsh laws and decades of accumulated ignorance about pot's centuries-old therapeutic value. Ignorance the government is desperate to maintain. Along the way, he also gains a very personal insight into the drug's medicinal value that shapes his opinion about legalization. <laughs> Let's welcome Greg Campbell. And you know what's funny is that I was asking my wife on my way up here whether I should pick a serious or a funny passage to read from the book before I got here. I feel like I'm auditioning for Last Comic Standing. <laughs> Those are two hard acts to follow, so thanks very much. Um, you know, the, the point of uh, the story of a book here is to talk about how your book um, came to being, about the ideas that sort of spurred you into motion and resulting in a finished product. And it's hard to, uh, you know, 
admit this in front of a group, in front of a room full of writers, but it was financial. And, you know, it's not that you're going to need to necessarily resort to committing federal felonies as I did in order to finance your life so that you can write, but it does help. I I will tell you that. Um, For those of you who've been in Colorado back in 2009 um, and were there for a couple years beforehand, you probably would recall the time that medical marijuana sort of exploded into the national or the mainstream consciousness, I guess is a good way to put it. It happened across the nation, but it happened here in Colorado probably more significantly than anywhere else. And we've now had a medical marijuana law in effect since 2000, but it's been something that we haven't really taken advantage of. It's not something that folks have really paid very close attention to that people have um, employed for either business purposes or even for medicinal purposes. Um, And that's basically because there's this necessary conflict between state laws and federal laws. Regardless of how legal we make it here in Colorado, it is always going to be, until things change, very illegal, as illegal as humanly possible, on the federal level. So there was still this threat of a DEA in, in interception of whatever you may be doing here in Colorado and of federal prosecution for, um, for taking advantage of the state law. Well, that changed in 2009. There was a kind of a perfect storm of circumstances where certain policies were challenged in the courts here in Colorado that kind of eliminated um, certain barriers that had been imposed kind of on a regulatory level. Um, and it was coinciding with a, um, with a really weird change from the federal level. It wasn't even a change, but it's sort of a signal. There was a memo that was sent from the U.S. Justice Department to the U.S. attorneys in all the states in the U.S. territories. And it said, let's back off of all the medical marijuana businesses and patients in states where they've passed permissive laws. As long as they're complying with local laws, let's kind of leave them alone. Let's put our resources somewhere else. So the result was, especially in Colorado, because just a few months before we'd gotten rid of these regulatory barriers, was this giant explosion of gondrepreneurialism. And I wish I could actually claim uh, you know, the title to having come up with that, coined that phrase, but uh, I didn't even know where it came from, but it's, a, but it's a perfect representation of what occurred, is that you had these pot smokers kind of coming out of the woodwork everywhere. And if you were here at that, at that date and time, you remember this, it was suddenly... You're driving. If you if you weren't paying attention, you would think that Rastafarians had staged a coup <laughs> in Colorado because you're driving along one day and everything's fine. You're driving along the next, and there's a neon pot sign next to the Starbucks you go to, and you're like, "Well, that's weird. I must have hallucinated that." And then you go to the dry cleaner, and there's another neon pot leaf over there by the dry cleaner. So, so here I am um, as a freelance writer, um, you know, counting my coins, you know, in order to make the mortgage every every month, and thinking to myself, man, you know, these guys are talking about millions of dollars of, of revenue that's available, that can, that's a, that can happen here. And the, the light went off, the bell happened when I was sitting around with a couple of other reporters, and we were all bitching, basically, about how, how little money we were making, and everybody was getting laid off, and life sucked, and this guy, you know, was reaching, he couldn't even find a couldn't even find change to tip the waitress, and he was going through his wallet, literally shaking it out, and his medical marijuana card fell out. And I was like, hey, what's this? You're a medical marijuana patient? He's like, hell no. 
I just, I smoke so much pot that it just makes more sense to go to the marijuana dispensaries. Because this guy did this photo story and he's growing this many pots or this, this plants are this high and by God he makes, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month and that's the business we ought to be in. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. That's the business we ought to be in. And so I went and proposed it to the wife. And you know, here's the beautiful thing about, um, you know, well, you have to cultivate this, first of all, I guess, I suppose. If you're a writer, uh, you have to cultivate with your, with your spouse, the moneymaker in, um, in, in the relationship. You have, to, you have to, you know, you have to work them into the, hearing these harebrained ideas around the breakfast table. You can't just spring it upon them, you know. So my wife has heard a lot of harebrained ideas, and it really wasn't that bad of a jolt to her to be, like, one day sipping coffee and say, Honey, I think I'm going to grow pot. And we're going to make a lot of money on it. And we're going to do it down in the basement. And what do you think? And so she didn't even break her stride. She was still eating her yogurt. And she just said, you know, how do you know it's legal? Can we be safe? You know, oh, you're going to write about it? Okay, we'll, we'll make a book about this. Okay, fine. Um, what are you going to tell your son, who at that time was 13 years old, which I didn't need to be a rocket scientist to know that that's the age at which most children begin to experiment with illicit drugs. And um, I didn't have a clear answer for her at the time because I'd already sort of put everything into motion. We were going to grow pot in the house, and (laughs) by God, I sort of forgot about the kid. (laughs) But the point of it all was, you know, I've I've always, from the very beginning, all the things I've written, um, all the books I've written have been, have had a major component and and a real premium placed upon um, experiencing what you're writing about. And that's why I wanted to go to the Balkans to report about the Balkans. That's why I wanted to um, attempt to smuggle diamonds to report about conflict diamond smuggling. Um, when I wrote Flawless, which is a story, it's kind of an Ocean's Eleven style um, examination into you know, how this vault got broken into and these thieves got away with uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, uh, worth of loot, I learned how to pick locks. And so if I'm going to write about medical marijuana, I figured I'm going to grow medical marijuana. I'm going to be on the medical marijuana registry. And so it sort of started from there. And, um, you know, it it was a crazy harebrained idea in the first place. Um, I was watching a lot of weeds on Showtime. And, (laughs) you know, Nancy Botwin's adventures were not exactly the ones I wanted to kind of go through. But I I figured I could probably avoid most of that. Uh, We live in Colorado, after all. I mean, you know, we... Medical mar- marijuana wasn't invented with the, with the passage of the mar- medical marijuana law. It's been around here for quite some time. So, um, so you know, so we kind of went through, went, we, we, we put everything in place to sort of investigate and experiment, but at the kind of the heart and the core of it was what is this about? Is this actually medical? Is there medicinal benefits to it? Is this just a ruse? Is it just uh, an excuse, as you hear the critics uh, claim, that for potheads to just be able to get stoned with impunity and claim that they're, you know, that they've suffered from, you know, who knows what? Or is it actually something that is beneficial to people who suffer from serious illnesses? And what I discovered is a little bit of both. Um, there's no question that the that the marijuana laws that are in place are laws that were written by people who have a greater agenda to pass a a broader legalization scheme and that they hope to do that by making the idea, the whole concept of marijuana, more palatable to people by making it more acceptable. 
And it just so happens that marijuana does have some extremely useful medicinal benefits and purposes. And as I was looking at this, you can go through as much research as you like, and there's a lot of research out there that I, that I tapped into, um, a lot of peer-reviewed journals and um, you know, anecdotes and everything that goes like back into the 70s to show that this was not something that has just suddenly dawned upon us. This has actually been around not just for decades, but it's, it goes back thousands and thousands of years, medicinal benefits of, of cannabis. Um, but it really kind of sank home when I realized that my cousin – had benefited from it, which I didn't realize. I didn't realize that I had a pers- such a personal connection to it. My father is a, a radiologist, and he treats a lot of cancer patients. And I called him up one day just to see if he'd um, ever come across folks who'd used marijuana to help alleviate the symptoms of chemotherapy, which is one of the most common uses. And he said, well, yeah, I have, but I think you should call your aunt and learn more about that. And so what I learned and discovered was that my cousin, who lives in New York or lived in New York, um, had, was diagnosed with mesothelioma, which is a full-body cancer that attacks the lining of the organs. Um, it's incurable, and nobody really knows exactly how it starts. It can be, uh, it can be brought on by ex- exposure to asbestos or other means, but, and nobody exactly knows how my cousin got it. But the point is she had it, and she really wanted to fight it. So she decided to go through aggressive chemotherapy, and that chemotherapy just ripped her apart. It, it, was, it was devastating to her. And she was prescribed a, a whole battery of anti-nausea drugs that all had the same drawback. They all had to be swallowed. And if you're suffering full-body nausea, especially with chemotherapy, you know that you can't keep anything down. That's the whole point of it. That's what you're trying to... Um, that's what you're trying to alleviate is the fact that you're retching with your full body. So somebody, and my aunt wouldn't be too specific about this other to say family and friends, suggested that she try marijuana to alleviate the nausea. And I have a number of doctors in my, in my family, and so it could have, the suggestion could have come from any one of them. Um, but actually procuring it could have come from any one of my dozens of cousins who live in the New York area. And... <laughs> In fact, at one point, my elderly aunt actually did the drug deal. She, um, she lives in Long Island, and so she took the Long Island Railroad to New York City, talking to her connection on the cell phone, um, and went to Penn Station and got out and connected with them by talking about where they were going um, on the corner. And she got into the, into the car, and as she's describing this to me, I'm thinking of the medical marijuana card I have in my pocket, which... I wouldn't say I necessarily scammed my way into. I was very honest about the fact that I have a sore back from time to time, and the doctor felt that marijuana would be the only solution. (laughs) I didn't argue. I'm not a medical person. So, but there was a disparity, a very fundamentally unfair disparity with the fact that I could go down to any one of the 20 dispensaries in Fort Collins at the time and pick my medicine. But my aunt, who is 70-plus years old, was running around like a common criminal in the underground of New York in order to procure my dying cousin's uh, relief from her suffering. So, um, so my whole attitude sort of changed. And I, I don't want to keep on going a little, any, any longer other than to read a little bit. That's the gist. And the fact that I didn't get arrested, at least yet. Um, <laughs> the more the publicity comes down, you, know, you never know. Okay, so the part I would like to read is the description of having my medical marijuana appointment. 
which occurred at a place called the Med Shed <laughs> in Boulder, which wasn't actually even open for business at the time. It was, uh, it was a medical marijuana dispensary 2B, um, which decided to hold a mass house call for people who felt like they could, could benefit from medical marijuana in order that we would then transfer our rights to grow the marijuana to them so that they could actually grow the crop. <clears throat> Getting the doctor to agree to recommend marijuana was more than just a rubber stamp formality. A prospective patient had to at least follow the script dictated by the state of Colorado itself and claim to suffer one of the eight qualifying illnesses, which were listed right there on the form that awaited the physician's signature. The woman who was denied a recommendation and who caused my friend Nick to rethink the illness he suffered from the most had tried to argue that smoking pot had helped her cope with stress. While that may have been the case and might have been approved had she been in California, where the law gives doctors greater leeway to recommend pot for anything they, felt they feel it might help, stress is not on the list in Colorado. The doctor had no choice but to turn her down, and she left the med shed in tears. I was confident that Nick would su succeed with the achy joints idea we'd agreed upon because my own appointment a few minutes before had gone perfectly, even though no one had provided the physician with so much as a semi-private space to interview his patients. I sat next to him on a folding chair in the middle of the room, surrounded by eavesdroppers. Our medical complaints would be aired communally. Luckily, there was no physical exam or taking of vital signs. It wasn't that sort of appointment. I'd rehearsed my story all morning. I suffered from a painful back as a result of an extremely uncomfortable transatlantic flight in 2001. The backrest was broken, the flight was crowded, and I slept for about six hours jammed into an awkward position, forced into a cramped little space by the heavy woman next to me who overflowed her seat. Halfway through the flight, I also managed to crack a molar on a peanut, which led me to favor one side of my jaw when I chewed. A dentist told me the screaming headaches I suffered were probably caused by temporomandibular joint disorder caused by the broken tooth. I hobbled off the plane with a swollen face, looking like I'd had to be subdued by the flight attendants. My jaw fixed itself, but my back has never been the same. Because it was entirely true, the story seemed very reasonable as I ran it through in my head. But saying it out loud in front of this doctor, I realized how ridiculous it sounded. <laughs> Yet there was no denying that for several years, sitting, standing, or lying in any one position for too long could be agonizing. I went to a general practitioner who, who prescribed the Ambien to help me sleep through the night. And she referred me to a specialist since the injury reoccurred on my way back from several weeks in Africa. She was worried that he developed some exotic disease. The specialist ran bone scans and blood tests and took x-rays but could find nothing wrong. He suggested exercise and yoga. Did any of that help? The med shed doctor asked. Not really, I replied. Sometimes it helps for a little while, but sometimes it makes it worse. I also described a brief trip to Amsterdam during which I took a few puffs on a friend's joint and then slept like a baby. Oh, so you've, mar you've used marijuana for this, he said. Only that once, I answered. Since I was in Amsterdam, I thought it would be a good time to try it without getting into trouble. That last bit was an especially clever flourish, I thought. <laughs> Despite how suspicious my tale sounded, I didn't want to give the doctor any reason to suspect that he was giving some stoner a legal pass, even though three Advil and a glass of wine are all I need to sleep through the night. If I didn't spend six or ten hours a day typing cross-legged and hunched over my laptop like an orangutan, I'm sure I could cure my back pain for good. <laughs> he checked the box for severe pain and signed his name at the bottom. 
It was the only way I ended up knowing his name because he never introduced himself. The appointment took four and a half minutes. Good luck, he said, as the next patient took my seat. With that, I was legal. Or at least I thought I was. Truthfully, I wasn't 100% sure. It still seemed unlikely that the ratty paper I folded up and put in my pocket would be enough to keep me out of prison if I were caught growing marijuana in my home, which was shaping up to be my plan. I wasn't asked about any other drugs I might be taking or asked to detail my medical history or required to sit before a panel of psychiatrists to prove my sanity. I knew my challenges weren't over, though. There was one group of people I had to convince I wasn't crazy. My family. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right, all right. Um, Our uh, second panelist is Seth Brady Tucker. Seth's first book, titled Mormon Boy, is set for release on April 18th, 2012. However, we have it here tonight. Um, He has recently had his fiction and poetry published in Rosebud, Connecticut Review, Chautauqua, Art Times, and Poetry Northwest. He makes wine in his basement and has tried amateur chainsaw wood sculpting. (laughs) All right. He is originally from Wyoming, served as a combat paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division, and habitually speaks to his dogs as if they were humans. Moby, in particular, does not care for his poetry. Uh, David Kirby says of Mormon boy, boy, Seth Tucker looks into the abyss, but it's a pretty abyss, as one of these poems says, because life rendered with feeling is always beautiful. Tucker embraces his subject, but transcends it. A pleasure to read. These poems show poets how great poems are written. Give it up for uh, Seth Tucker. So it's always a little strange talking about a book of poetry. Can everybody hear me? All right. Um, well, I should say it's, it's also nice to follow Greg um, because of our common connection of uh, growing pot in the basement. And also because I got into the business of poetry to make money. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how much money you can make doing this. So... Um, so, so the way, the inspiration of Mormon Boy, uh, fiction writers, kind of, you get an idea for a book. Poetry, it's more, I have an idea that will hopefully blossom into a book that doesn't have a narrative. Um, so, so with my book, it was more about my experience with the 82nd Airborne. It was my experience as uh, sort of the perspective of a Jack Mormon. I guess. Um, I felt like, uh, uh, I remember having a conversation with a novelist friend of mine who said, you know, Seth, one of the great things that you have going for you, I feel like this is aimed at my chest, um, is that you have all this material. And I hadn't thought about a poetry collection or poetry as material, per se, at that point in time. And so I started writing, I guess, with a purpose, more than I had been before, where I was just seeing things and responding to them and writing poetry about them. Um, And so what I did is I started looking at 
the world around me through the eyes of, you know, a Jack Mormon who had experienced some combat and who had been at the university and academic, sort of an academic for a number of years. And um, basically, Mormon Boy really isn't about being a Mormon. It's about the perspective of a Jack Mormon when it comes to these experiences or whatever. So um, basically, when I put the, put the collection together, I mean, that's the easy part, right? You just... You just write a bunch of poems and you just put them together and somebody publishes them because you're a fucking genius, right? They love you. Um, but that wasn't really how it happened. What, what really happens is you put a, a collection together and then you send it out. And there's a bunch of ways that you can send it out for poetry. The, the most common way to do it is poetry collections or poetry uh, uh, competitions. Uh, a lot of the university presses and small presses, they'll put on competitions. And, and, and it's good. The reason I chose that path is it's good for your CV for teaching. Um, and it's also, they give you a little, little check, a little bit of money for it. Um, the other way to do it is vanity presses. The other way to do it is to send to open reading periods. However, most presses don't do that anymore. They have competitions that you have to submit to. And so it, it's kind of a, uh, it's a strange way of getting your stuff published. But um, I had the benefit of having really good readers who told me this poem doesn't work. Or I had, or this series of poems seems really out of place in this book, which I'm in love with those poems, and they're telling me that. And I'm like, no way, that has to go on Mormon Boy. And um, so that's sort of the struggle when you're, when you're, trying to get a poetry collection together rather than having, you know, brilliant ideas like that. Like, damn it. Um, <laughs> like, I knew there was a way to make money as a writer. <laughs> knew it. Um, so it was funny when I, when I finally did get it published or when I, when I got the acceptance uh, to have this published, I was actually working a sales job, trying to pay for student loans, kind of miserable, really at an unhappy point in my writing life. And uh, I was waiting to be fired from this job. So um, I'd heard that the sales, uh, the company had basically said that, you know, there's going to be layoffs. And I'm like, oh, I hope I don't get laid off. Or, man, I really hope I do get laid off. Like, uh, there was this sort of juggling act going on. And the morning that I was laid off, I remember just being pissed. I'm like, how could they lay me off? They, they let this idiot stay. And they let me go. And then I got a call from Dana Curtis from Elixir Press. And she said, your poetry manuscript has won the editor's prize. So I was pumped. But I really didn't know how to respond to it, so I was kind of like, that's great. Um, so you're going to publish it. That's fantastic. And I had to apologize because I couldn't generate the enthusiasm because I'd just been fired from my job. <laughs> and um, anyway, no real stories about crazy editorial process with, uh, with Elixir Press. It was really smooth. Um, Basically went through the uh, Dana uh, Curtis at Elixir Press let me kind of do what I wanted to do as far as editing it and getting the uh, beautiful cover which I owe to Glenn Brown. Um, he was the that was the most difficult part is tracking him down. He's kind of a uh, 
um, isolated figure, I guess. It took me six months to track down an email for a person that even knew him that would give me the rights to the cover. So um, with that said, I'm going to go straight into some poems. Um, Hopefully this will give you an idea of how the book is set up. Um, This first one is called The Road to Baghdad. The road to Baghdad is less a road than a floral collection of spongy and soft bodies, a gathering of the myriad colors of nations, burnt umber, puce, kiln red, olive drab, hot steel. It is a road that stretches eternally into the ochre mocha of the horizon. The road to Baghdad has its own atmosphere and sound, so unlike the roads I have driven in the States. Here, the road is silent, but for the pops and spits of flame where trucks clutch the bright and colorful bodies of the unfortunate dead. The road to Baghdad is like the aftermath of a 4th of July parade, streets littered with a chaos of celebration, where dyed paper and the bright holes of fireworks gather in the gutter. Sometimes I look for the road to Baghdad in old maps or on the web, but I can never find it. The distance of time has cleared it from the record books, has erased it from everywhere but my mind and from the minds of those soldiers who saw it with me. Today, I awake in the morning with the unexplained scratches on the bridge of my nose, and I ask my empty room, where has that road gone? I understand if there is no road, then there is no me. But if none of this ever really happened, how do I awaken every morning to the sun burning my outline into the wild asphalt of that beautiful highway. Oh, you can hold your applause. Uh, The next one is titled Mormon Boy. Mormon Boy follows the flat print of moon boots in the snow, a collie slobbering and grinning by his side. He steps uncertainly, his arms windmilling occasionally, the fat pack of his ink-stained harness shifting on his thighs with cool size of newspaper and rubber bands and bright orange plastic bags. He throws his paper like he skips rocks, quick and tight, spinning to to thump loudly on screen doors. The sun is combing its hair, looking in the mirror, rubbing its fingers over hot teeth, spitting phlegm in the sink of the galaxy. The sun stares into the sink, eyes as red and bloody and hung over his time, slow to appear for the, Mor- for the Mormon boy and his dog. The sky is up and cheerful already, white and blue and cold, a reverse impression that mirrors the snowy fleets of white as far as the, body can, as far as the boy can see. His nose is running with the cold, and his numb fingers have trouble clutching the sides of the paper harness. But he is unstoppable. He will deliver them all. He is the best paper boy in town. The papers always get delivered, and even the huge bang of his throws are tolerated by the sleepy housewives and the humorless farmers with their black coffee. Sometimes the Mormon boy cries miserably to himself if the snow is deep and heavy. His legs are short and the, snow, and the snow is high, and sometimes he even gets frustrated enough to kick his beloved black collie in the ribs when he cries. One leg after another raised high and dropped, raised high and dropped his tears angry white lines on the red of his cheeks. He is dumbfounded by a world that allows a good boy to suffer this hardship. 
Mormon boy believes he doesn't deserve this. His sorrow is huge and wounded, and he laments his own terrible plight with the power of time's children. No one deserves to wade through snow for 80 bucks a month, and him, only six years old and cold and forced to break to kick his beloved dog in the ribs. And Mormon boy will never know that the seven years he walks this route will be the longest tenure with one company he will ever have. <laughs> But he is saving, saving, saving when he is not stealing candy from Olson's market and when he is not buying Swedish gummy fish for Robin, she kisses him, and Tara, the cutest girl in school. And he is tithing too, making sure of his place in the baptismal font where at eight he will be dipped by his solemn father. When the time comes, Mormon boy will wonder, why did he kick the dog? And why did he let Jeffrey touch his dinger? And why does he spit in his baby sister's milk? And is it bad that he eats his boogers? And does little baby Jesus know he picks and eats every one? <laughs> one baptismal day, he will see the asbestos ceiling tilt. And as the cold water envelops him, he will wonder if maybe, his li- if maybe little Mr. Perfect Kevin Taylor, whom he hates with all his little Mormon boy might, <laughs> was right. If maybe the bas- baptismal font is where they drown the little boys who just aren't cutting it. Thanks for having me. I think I have time for one more. Sorry, I was sick all week. Um, I was going to do this as uh, Barry White tonight, <laughs> but now I'm not going to be able to find it because I pulled it out. All right. This is entitled, Making Out in Cars with Bucket Seats and Other Tales of Woe. (laughs) And sorry, it's smaller print, so we'll see if I can work my way through this. As always, the flashing blue and reds catch me off guard, as if I were new to this teenage fumble and clutch. And our zippers and buckles betray our shaking hands. Our blue jeans grow thick and oily, loath to swallow our legs again. Her crimson lipstick, a clown smudge, touch up to my face. At the last, our jeans are force-fed enough to cover her hoo-ha and my shamed boner. But late, too late, we are doomed. Her bra straps hang like wings from her tight t-shirt armholes and fly she would, letting my bones be worried and gnawed by the indigo hulk of the officer approaching. (laughs) Another authority growing by the step, and isn't this the limit? Same cop as last night, but different girl. (laughs) I walk the line as my new ex-ex studies the slow approach of disappointed cars that circle and leave. I follow the light as her auburn hair is framed by the glow of a cigarette unsanctioned in my prelude. And then I am deemed sober, but Indigo Hulk senses an attitude and burns me with 20 awkward questions about last night, loud enough to squeeze dead my last chance with red. My secret out, her escape a certainty. But that isn't enough for the incredible blue dick of a cop. I am squeezed for sure as my search as the search of my backpack commences with a tattered copy of the anarchist cookbook, then degrades to an array of loose condoms and bits of weed and seeds lining the bottom. There was a connection tonight. (laughs) 
The text is indeed the copy stolen from the library, but there's small trouble there. Then there's the dope, but hey, I've seen crimson hot 5-0 heat before, and no cop paperwork would convict on those tiny bits of party favors, and Red, being no dope, opens my car door and starts sprinting away into the night, her silhouette flashing purple and black in the swirl of ruby and sapphire lights, long hair swinging like a middle finger. And then I am running too, my dark silhouette a bullseye, a giant target, a free pass for a cop busting his first kill cherry. And will the absurdity never stop? I run right down the middle of the dirt road to a rusting bridge until the bustling light of the law enclose me in the cherry bosom of their authority. And it is not lost on me either that if I had simply bought American, those bucket seats of the Honda would have been the wide bench seats of a Nova with room to make love like adults. Supine and simple, hidden away from the red sweep of lights out to make us tremble and shrink. Thank you. Ah, wonderful. All right. Our uh, third panelist tonight is Linda Ashman. Linda Ashman's many picture books have been included on the best of the year lists of the New York Times, Parenting, Child, and Cookie Magazines, the New York Public Library, and others. She lives in Denver with her husband, their teenage son, and two rascally mutts. Samantha on a Roll was one of her 10 picture books on the New York Times Notable Children's Books of 2011 list. In a starred review, mm -hmm, in a starred review, Kirkus called it a memorable first skate by an irresistible imp. Please welcome Linda Ashman. Linda's making her way. She's making her way. <laughs> Hello. Um, thanks for inviting me tonight. And um, let me just get settled here. Um, I, too, like Greg and Seth, um, I'm in this business of writing children's books, in my case, for the money. So, um, okay, so idea first. Um, This is weird up here. It's not like my classes. Okay, so, and I don't, okay. Um, the idea for this book, Samantha on a Roll, um, was actually borrowed from an unfortunate incident that my husband had uh, in his youth, and it was circa 1970-1972, Southern California. Uh, my husband, not my husband then, uh, Jack was 10, maybe 12, old enough to know better, certainly. And this, he and his family were on vacation in San Clemente, and this was the era of skateboarding. And near where they were staying, there was this really big hill, and my husband, Jack, decided that he wanted to go down this hill on his skateboard. And he didn't tell his parents, but he told his two younger sisters who said, not a good idea. That's a really big hill. 
Um, but he said, you know, oh, I can do it. I'm going to do it. So he gets to the top of this hill. And, of course, this was the era before helmets and pads and all that stuff. And, oh, and at the bottom of the hill was a curb and gravel and railroad tracks. But I, he wasn't thinking about that sort of thing. He was just determined to go down this hill on his skateboard. So Jack is up at the top of the hill on the skateboard. His sister's, you know, don't do it, but he's going to do it. So he's on the skateboard, starts going down faster, faster. At some point realizes he can't stop and suddenly realizes what's at the bottom, which he might have noticed before. So he has this choice. Do I stay on the skateboard or do I jump off? So being not totally stupid, he jumped off. And the propulsion, of course, he flew face first, face first, and still has, he was showing me today, the scars from the incident. This is some 40 years later. So anyway, that was the idea for this story, only preteen boys lying bloody in the cement aren't really welcome stories for picture books. (laughs) So I had to do a little bit of tweaking. So the preteen boy becomes a little girl, and the skateboard becomes roller skates. And I had to come up with a happier ending, obviously. (laughs) And I had to have a little more than just going down a hill, so I had to work in some other stuff um, within the limit of a picture book, which is about 500, 600 words. And I had to, even though this is a fantasy story, Um, I had to have a benign parental presence because you can't have little kids just running around the streets on the roller skates without any parent involved. Um, So, at least in the old days, we could do that. um, So I'm going to read a little bit of the book, and then I'm going to talk about the process to publication. By the way, one thing I learned from this book, I dedicated it to friends who have a really big family. And that turned out to be a really good thing because (laughs) instead of dedicating it to my husband and son that I usually do, they actually bought a lot of books and gave them to other people in the family. So it's a useful bit of advice. I'm thinking the Kennedys, maybe, or the family in Tennessee, or wherever they are that have 20-some kids. That might be a good... Okay. So, I, you probably can't see it, but I'm in the habit of reading books this way, so... No, Samantha, not today. Please, go put those skates away. You're still too small. You don't know how, and I can't help you. Not right now. That's Mama talking, obviously. 
But Samantha cannot wait, straps herself into a skate, straps herself into the other, tries them on despite her mother. Sammy stands and rolls a bit, says, I knew these skates would fit. I'll just try them in the hall. Mama wouldn't care at all. Mama, talking to Aunt Joan, would have cared if she had known. (laughs) Sammy skates from here to there, the bookcase to the rocking chair, through the kitchen, through the den, down the hall and back again. Sammy likes the way they glide, longs to try those skates outside. Why not, she says, I'm doing fine. I'm sure that Mama wouldn't mind. Mama, busy bathing spot, would have minded quite a lot. (laughs) One more loop across the floor, then Samantha's out the door, down the sidewalk, toward the street, roller skates strapped on her feet, rising upward, what a thrill, to the top of Hawthorne Hill. Oh, this, oh, the view, the park, the pond, the houses, streets, and farms beyond, the baseball fields and swimming pools, the trees and gardens, shops and schools, a scene of such tremendous scope, she doesn't note the long, steep slope. Slow at first, she glides downhill, quickly then, and quicker still, till, till the scenery's blurring past. Sammy's going very fast. Meanwhile, Mama, changing John, doesn't realize Sammy's gone. There's that benign neglect. Will is chasing butterflies. Sammy takes him by surprise. Flying by him like a jet carries off his insect net. Matt and Molly playing ball miss the frantic warning call. Sammy stumbles, bumping. Matt winds up with his baseball bat. Toward the park now, swerving right, snags the string of Katie's kite. Katie hollers, come back now, Sammy cries. I don't know how. Now there's music, someone's singing, outdoor wedding, bells are ringing, whiz, whoosh, zip, zoom, straight ahead, the bride and groom. (laughs) Sammy tries to move aside, it's too late, they all collide, the bride is down, the groom is pale, Sammy wears the bridal veil. So, like um, Sammy's journey, my uh, journey to publication was a little twisty and turny and bumpy. Um, I submitted it in July 2007 when I finished it, and I'm wondering if other people have this long publication process that you do with children's books, um, because it really takes... This actually wasn't as long as some books. The longest has been eight years, but... um, But this was three and a half or four, so it's pretty long. Um, So it was rejected initially by five publishers. I had an agent, a different one at the time, who sent it out exclusively. So it took basically a year to get those five rejections. And then finally it was acquired by someone at FSG, Farrar Strauss-Giroux, named 
Melanie Krupa, who did something really incredible, which was signed up an illustrator almost immediately, Christine Davignier, who is French and lives in Paris. And that is really unusual. It usually takes months and months, sometimes a year, to sign up the illustrator, which is part of this long process. And it's a really good thing that she did this because a few months after acquiring the manuscript, she got laid off in a big restructuring at at the publishing company, which is never a good thing when your manuscript gets orphaned. It just means delays and possibly that your book, in one case at least with me, that it probably will never be published. So... So then it was in limbo for a while, and I met at a conference uh, Margaret Ferguson, who had just been given her own imprint at FSG, Margaret Ferguson Books, and she told me, well, I'm thinking of taking your manuscript because I've worked with Christine before, and I know how to work with her and what she likes and all that kind of thing, and never once said... I really love your manuscript, and I really want to do it. So that wasn't the best sign. (laughs) So about a month after that, this is now July 2009, um, I get this editorial letter unlike anything I've ever gotten from an editor before. And um, basically, it has a lot of good stuff in it that I definitely incorporated into the manuscript. Um, but there were three main things. She wanted me to say have either Samantha or Sammy, not both, which was a problem because I picked it purposely because for the rhyme scheme, it's good to have Samantha or Sammy. And I had started off with Fiona on a roll, but I couldn't abbreviate Fiona so well, you know, fee or Fi or, yeah. So, <laughs> so that was number one. Number two was her, uh, no one wears roller skates anymore, she said. So should it be roller blades, which would mean I'd have to change most of the manuscript. But fortunately, I discovered that people do indeed still roller skate. So. And the third thing was she went through the entire manuscript line by line and counted the syllables and made two columns for me. One is the number of syllables that are there now, and one are, is the number of syllables that should be there. And she told me I needed to be consistent with my rhythm. <laughs> Poets in the room, do you, is that the way you do it? Do you count syllables? No. And I know I don't do many things well in life, but... <laughs> And I wish I did other things well, but one thing I know that I do well is rhyme. And so... (laughs) Thank you. So... (laughs) 
So my agent uh, had to have a little conversation with her and say, Linda's not going to change the rhyme scheme or the names, but she'll do these other things. And it all worked out okay. And by the time um, the book was done, a couple years later, I got this nice note. Dear Linda, here is Samantha. Doesn't she look darling? That's one of those publishing words for children's (laughs) book people. (laughs) I am so glad I inherited this one. Thank you for letting FSG publish your wonderful story, XO Margaret. So, so um, the only other thing I want to say is that I really feel like I uh, like rhyme is kind of a dying art, and that poetry isn't. People like poetry, but poetry and rhyme and verse is kind of dying out. And Margaret, not knowing how to do rhyme, was evidence of that. And I grew up with my mom reading rhyming poetry to me, and I loved it, and I still love it. And so, for at least for National Poetry Month in April, if you have kids, Go to the library, get lots of rhyming picture, not, well, rhyming picture books too, but poetry books, and not just Shel Still Silverstein. Um, <laughs> and if you need suggestions, email me, because I know a lot of great poetry collections that you should bring home and read aloud with your kids, because it's really fun, and, um, and I don't want it to die out. So thank you very much. I think I XO Linda Ashman, too. I think the XO should come back. (laughs) Um, All right. Our uh, final panelist is John Cotter. John Cotter is a recent transplant to Denver, having lived most of his life in Boston, Massachusetts, where he earned his master's degree in English literature at Harvard University. He's a founding editor at Open Letters Monthly, an online arts review, and he has critical essays forthcoming from The Quarterly Conversation and The New Republic. His first novel, Under the Small Lights, first appeared in 2010 from Miami University Press. The novel he's currently working on is set on the shady side of real estate in the 1980s. Um, (laughs) Under the Small Lights is a wry and lyrical take on the lives of lost 20-somethings, their stabs at art, and their unlucky lusts. Jack, Bill, Paul, and Corinna grow up without roadmaps, with dubious models, and with more pills and gin than they know what to do with. This is a novel about the doubtful possibility of collective love and the painful experiences which, once having endured them, we wouldn't be without. Let's welcome John Cotter. Thanks for this right. Um, thanks for asking me. Thanks, everybody, for still being here. Uh, I mean, the other, the other readers were great, but you stuck around for me, too, which is... You know, well, you'll see how that turns out. Um, so, I, I, so the story of the book. So, I made a couple of notes. I didn't want to go too long. Um, so, I went to the book. Took about eight years between when I thought to write it and when it actually was published. 
And the story of its conception is about 15 years long. It starts, um, I went to college to be an actor, um, but I quit uh, that. And uh, I started writing. Um, and at the time, what writing was, was it was completely, uh, it was affectation, really. I mean, I had an old typewriter, um, and I had a glass of whiskey and <laughs> some cigarettes. And, uh, and, and I wasn't even, I didn't really have anything to write about. So I used to do that William Burroughs thing where you, you take a couple of books and you pull the pages out and you cut them down the center and you rematch them up and then you kind of try to transcribe it, you know, poetically. Um, and I, th- I thought I was doing something very revolutionary. You know, I'd play jazz and I had a friend to come down from New York. He was doing that stuff too. And we'd do it together. We'd do it together. Um, but, uh, uh. And I, did, I just didn't know who I was, you know? I mean, I didn't... You're that age, and I think you, you're, you're sort of empty. You don't have any achievements to point to. You don't have any expertise in anything uh, when you're in your, your early 20s. And I think you tend to fill up that space with uh, bits of other people that you steal, bits of your heroes that you steal. Um, and I had a, a great friend, let's call him Paul, um, who was suave. And he knew how to look cool when he tapped the ash off his cigarette. He used to roll it around on the side of the ashtray. And uh, I had another friend, uh, call her Corinna. Uh, she was, uh, had a lot of money, and she was a dancer, and she had this beautiful house on the Connecticut shoreline, which was filled with all these old books in her father's library, which some of which I have now. And uh, Paul and Corinna got married, and I was very jealous. Um, and I, uh, I started working at a bookstore, and um, I started writing poetry um, to ease the pain in my, in my heart. Um, and I didn't write fiction until I met this wonderful little guy at the bookstore I worked at. His name was Steve. And he read my poetry, and he said, I think you're a fiction writer. And, uh, it's true. It's, that, that happens. And, uh, but he was great. He was a coach. Everyone needs a coach. I mean, we didn't have lighthouse writers in Boston at that point. So, I, so Steve was my coach, and he would say, give me 10 pages of fiction tomorrow. And he gave me b- bags of books, just sacks full of books, of, and they were great. Um, so I, uh, I started writing fiction and in a few years I started a novel and it was about a group of 20 somethings, uh, who meet in a threesome, menage a trois, and, uh, two of them get married and the third one, uh, follows them down to their house on the shoreline, uh, just to hang out and to sort of try to, <laughs> to sort of try to get back in there. Um, if, if at all possible. Um, and, and he has this friend in New York who's a playwright, and the two of them cut up pages of text. And, um, and, and, but he doesn't know what he wants to do. His name is Jack. He's, he's the main character. And uh, he's an actor, or he's a poet, or something. He isn't really any of these things. Um, he, he's going to be something really significant, but he has to choose first what he wants to do. Um, and acting becomes kind of a metaphor in the book for trying on these different selves for borrowing pieces of other people. In fact, the, the epigraph is from August Kleinzoller, who's a poet that I, I still like. I used to read him more than I do now. And it's, um, I often think we're all mere composites of our favorite people's habits, the way we talk and gesture and laugh, how we comb our hair and walk. And when I came across that epigraph, I thought, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what I'm doing. So, um, so I wrote a draft of the book and I showed it to friends and, uh, no one liked the beginning and no one liked the ending, but the middle was like, they thought it was okay. Like it had potential. Um, so I put the book away 
because uh, I couldn't handle criticism, you know, I, you know, so I just forget it. Um, so I went to graduate school and I made a couple of short films. I wrote ad copy. Um, and then a couple of years later I picked it up. I wrote another draft. Um, and I, uh, called Steve every night on the phone and read him what I wrote. And, uh, I cut a lot from the first draft. I just cut and cut and cut. Um, and then I put it, I showed it to a few friends, they had remarks and I put it away and I, I directed a couple of plays and I fell in love and I moved in with my girlfriend years go by. Um, I started an editorial job about an hour's drive north of Boston and in New England, that is a long drive, um, out here, you know, whatever. Uh, but (laughs) in, uh, in New England, you haven't even left the mountain lion range after an hour. You still have to, um, but, uh, in, in, it's right along the shore. This is very picturesque. And, uh, after I would, I would finish work at, I would, I didn't want to drive the hour home and then write because I'd be, you know, tired. So I would go to a coffee shop nearby. It's right down the street from Hawthorne's house. Um, his ghost did nothing for me. It didn't help. <laughs> didn't help at all. Um, and, uh, and I would, I would write there a little bit, revise there. And in fact, the descriptions of the Connecticut shoreline in the book resemble Salem, Massachusetts a lot more than they do Connecticut because I was there. Um, so I, I, uh, the economy collapsed. You guys may have heard. And, uh, and, uh, I got to listen to those job reports on the commute, you know, and I got laid off. Um, uh, so this is like the, the second layoff story tonight. Um, and the, the first thing I did was to polish the book. I went home and said, okay, well I got laid off. So now I'm going to, let's get this damn book out of the way. So I'd already submitted it to a couple of agents and they, they were nice. They said, you know, send us your next book. Um, <laughs> they, they thought it was, they thought it was too short. Uh, which at that point it was, I cut all the bad parts out. So it was pretty short. And, uh, and you know, they thought it could use a little more polish. So I, I tried to do that. And, uh, uh, I had a friend named Chip who's a writer. It's actually in this issue of the Harvard review. It's a really good writer. And, uh, he said, he suggested I subscribe to the writer's Chronicle, which is AWP's magazine. And I saw a notice in the back that Miami university press was, uh, had an open submissions for, they publish one short novel a year. And my book was just short enough. <laughs> I just made the word count. So I submitted it. And uh, about seven or eight years after I started writing the book, the phone rang. And it was Miami. Miami, Ohio. Uh, it's not what I was picturing when I submitted the, <laughs> submitted the manuscript. Um, and I had this, there was this old heart, art history professor who lived downstairs. Um, he used to teach at Wesleyan. He was retired. And um, he had a girlfriend who was about 30 years younger than he was. And, uh, and he saw me later that day that the day I got the phone call and he said, I hear you published your book. And I said, how did you know? And he said, uh, he said, I heard you shouting. <laughs> I heard your whoop. And I, and I turned to Shirley and said, I bet that young man published his book. Um, and he published his book before, so he knew what it was like. Um, and I went to downtown where, where my girlfriend worked and I said, we're I'm taking you out for lunch. <laughs> and we, Went out and had lunch. I was, I was very excited. Uh, I called my friend Adam, who's a writer, and I said, I have good news. And he said, is this John? Because John only has bad news. <laughs> um, and uh, so, uh, so that's sort of the story. Miami was great to work with. The editor, Dave Schloss, was wonderful. He, um, he, he, I felt so read. He, he read every sentence and made a little remark on it. And they, they did a nice job. They were great. So I, I got to go to Miami, Ohio. <laughs> It's all right. Uh, they steam their bagels there. Yeah, they don't toast them. They steam them. You, you're, you, you lived in Miami? I did. Yeah, well, about 20 minutes away. Wow. 
I was pretty, it's a pretty little farm country. Okay. Yeah, I know. I heard about that. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to read a little bit of the book. Uh, this is uh, so the character of Jack um, is going to act in class. He would really much rather be with Corinna on the shoreline. She's running tours out along the Connecticut shoreline, but he's at acting class. He's got to be, you know, great somehow. Um, so his professor's name is CB, uh, and the other characters are all acting students. Let's make a circle, CB said. And Toby and I slipped off our jackets and quietly circled with the group. Never in Boston on the weekends. I hadn't drank or stayed out late with the class. I didn't know them well. They were all beautiful. None of the girls made up. Everyone in sweats or shorts, wife beaters. I exchanged a couple of smiles, usually a beat late. I found my place. Everyone looked down at the mats on the floor, embarrassed to stare at one another or seeming that way. I focused on Julie. We'd had coffee once, and she told me she used to be a dancer. Her posture was like Corinna's tight and relaxed, like a soldier at ease when the war is okay. I wound up standing straight across from CB. What I want you to do today, he said, looking at me but talking to everyone, is pick a gesture. It doesn't matter what the gesture is. You can move your arm, wave. It doesn't matter exactly what. A loud-voiced girl named Sonia made a show of smoothing her long black hair. She looked around, and at CB's nod, she smoothed it theatrically. Everybody, he repeated, gesture, repeat it, and let it be natural. So I tried to feel whatever I was feeling. I found myself turning my palms up by my sides, letting them drop back down. Toby stared straight ahead, then started patting his pocket for his wallet and keys. Next to me, Julie put her hands on her hips and huffed her chest. Everyone have one? Good. Now, walk with it. That's right. Just walk around the room. We began to walk. Now, exaggerate that gesture. Toby started bugging his eyes when he checked for his wallet. There was a, there was a shortish boy on the periphery whose cigarette mind became effeminate. Sur- surprising to me, my palm up, I don't know, grew ag- aggressive, like a barked what before the start of a fight. Good. Keep exaggerating. Be that gesture. For some reason, this started as looking one another in the eye. Sonia frisked her hair back, uh, staring at me, and I barked what with my hands. Julie, Julie strutted, tilting up her chin. My what hands reached higher and higher. The way it felt to make the gesture change, I started to imagine myself angrily conducting a symphony, one that could clash on without me. CB retreated to a corner, exaggerating the relaxation of his walk. His voice, when it came, was a touch loud. There is an animal inside your gestures. There is an animal inside your gesture. Toby, can you find him? (laughs) Starting with Toby was smart. He unblinkingly shifted his paranoid padding into a cross between a scratch and a primp. Holding his hands extended like a nimble, bottom-heavy raccoon, he began to wash some food. He... He continued to walk around the room, only this time with a careful waddle. Julie, CB said, what's your animal? You've got to find your animal, Julie. Jack, what's your animal doing? What does he want to do? 
As in each class, there was a point at which the smell of sweat and coffee on everyone's breath overpowered the sawdust smell. I caught it as we made a play jungle. I believe Sonia was a fierce cat attempting to eat Toby's raccoon. We all smelled human. Now, behave in a way that is true to how your animal behaves, CB shouted. If your animal is a predator, stalk your prey. If you are their prey, run. A blonde boy rolled himself into a ball on the ground. Sonia poked him with her nose before stalking on. Julie was a peacock, frisking away from predators, preening. I was high up and flying. The what in my arm spread full length and straight out, perpendicular. I relaxed and snapped my elbows, glided over the room. My eyes may have been malevolent, but I felt myself at a huge remove. Even CB was small. We looked at one another in equipose, and it was him who looked away. While CB shouted, the sun is getting low. You haven't eaten yet. I flew around the room twice, keeping my eyes up on the high wall sconces and the gargoyle boss. I pushed the air out with my palms and dropped them to sweep it. The violence of the push was only appropriate to what it takes to stay aloft in the air, not the big sweep it takes to lift off the ground. Small birds retract their wings to rise. I pushed mine out. I left the stage and lifted over the velvet seats of the wing, worn red seats tucked and sprung to the seat backs. I hung midair a foot below the arch ceiling, feeling the full potential of the theater seats until I felt their emptiness. I pushed through the back doors of the tech box and into the empty lobby and circled twice over the dirty floor. Outside, human, I walked quickly and easily home down the green strip of garden on Commonwealth Ave, anxious to get to my car, drive down the shore and wait for Corinna's second boat of the day to arrive back. All efficiency, she'd be checking the rigging in her cutoffs and her sweater. She'd see me with surprise and charge off and into me. I'd ride the next tour out with her, fill her up with the story, let her laugh in my ear. Thanks. Freaking love Lighthouse. So, we'll probably do 10, 15 of Q&A. And then um, we're going to put some tables in front of these guys. And if you want to uh, get a copy or get four copies, uh, or ten, whatever, um, do it. And they will sign, sign them. They will sign them all. Uh, so, who has a question? Yes. Oh, um, <clears throat> the age group is, um, I don't really think about the age group so much, but word count you have to keep in mind for your age, like if you're writing for a two or three year old, you'd probably write a two or 300 word manuscript. This one happens to be a little bit longer. It's about 600 words. The action and language is a little more grown up, so... Um, so it's probably for older kids, a little bit older, but up to about seven. I mean, it's not a huge age range. Um, and agent, 
finding an agent. I'm on my third, third time's the charm. So it's, but each one was okay for the time. And I think it just, I, I asked friends um, who were writers who they used. And at conferences, I would listen to the agents speak. And then I always interviewed them before I signed up. And now there's so much stuff on blogs. There's so many interviews with agents that you can find out a lot about people um, and what they publish and what they like and what their tastes are, which wasn't the case when I first started. So, yeah, so use that too. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, me. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm John. Well, he was fortunate because he got a better book, thanks to everybody else. Um, can you hear me? No. No? Really? Oh, I thought I had a booming voice. All right. Well, um, his, uh, his, his edits were different because everybody else, um, everybody else helped so much with the book that by the time he got it, he just got a better book. And, uh, I mean, everyone else was, was, was great, but they, they were looking at, you know, they would isolate a couple of problems. And they would say, you know, the problem here is that we don't know who these characters are early enough. Or the problem at the end is that, you know, it, it sort of ends in an artsy way. It doesn't tie up satisfactorily or, you know, the short story by the character doesn't work. I mean, pretty obvious stuff that I guess is obvious to me now, but at the time I was very attached to it. Dave, I mean, it was his job. So he, Dave Schloss, who's a poet, by the way, he's a terrific poet and he's a really great guy. Um, he he read every sentence and he just, I mean, he seemed to get the book and he's the one who chose the book for, for publication. And he, uh, he, he basically told me what he thought I was getting at. Like he told me what he thought was there. He read the book and said, here's what I think this sentence means. Here's what I think this sentence means. And that was very valuable to me because I could then say, oh, that's not at all what I meant to say, you know, but more often I, I thought, yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say. You got it. You know, it just made me love him. Um, so, uh, was that was that your question? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, it is. And some of that early criticism, I remember my friend Chip marked up the first chapter, and I was so angry at Chip, like I wanted to punch Chip. Like I remember, <laughs> I I remember I was walking back to the subway after we had our little writers group meeting in a bar, and so I was nice and oiled up, and I was, uh, I mean, my my. Poor girlfriend Elisa had to sit there on the curb with me and be like, "Chip's your friend. Chip's trying to help you." <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, "I'm going back in there." <laughs> and uh, and but you know, at, you know, a year later, I picked it up and I was like, "Damn, if Chip wasn't right about everything." So. Staying out of prison. (laughs) 
book isn't published yet, so we'll see how it actually goes. Um, I'm actually writing uh, fiction right now, so it's kind of a drop-off. Well, it's going back to what I originally did. I actually, my first publication was a fiction publication. Um, I've always, until about five years ago, thought of myself as a fiction writer, and then I realized I wasn't as good as any of the fiction writers, and so I was better at poetry, um, which is a higher art form. Um, than fiction. So that's what I've been working on. I really am staying out of prison, trying. <clears throat> uh, I'm currently not working on anything. Um, my, my agent wanted me to strike while the iron is hot with the next book idea, right when this one is coming out. But um, it was a long, hard slog to get this book kind of to where it is and you know my my publishing company is sterling which is owned by barnes and noble which if you follow the publishing press at all barnes and noble tried to sell sterling like three months ago and so everybody left and um it became a big difficult big difficulty trying to keep everybody's eye on the ball in order to get to where we are today so Happily, we are where we are today, and it is coming out in the next couple of days, but um, I needed some time to evaluate exactly what the next big project's going to be. So for the moment, um, I don't have any, any book plans at the, at the exact moment, but there will be one probably in the next six months or so. But it really is trying to stay out of prison. I have no idea where the statute of limitation is. I should have probably figured that out before I wrote this. <laughs> Everyone here is an accessory, though. No, right. Everyone's now an accessory. That's right. That's why I said we won't tell. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a nonprofit organization. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go to jail and tax. So, so is my whole organization. <laughs> I'm actually trying to write a sort of handbook on how to write picture books. So. If any of you were interested in it, uh, check out my website in a few months, and maybe I'll have some news on that. Uh, I'm writing a bunch of book reviews because I'm trying to figure out a way to actually make money as a writer. <laughs> I haven't really done yet. I got a little tiny check for the book, but the royalties haven't, um, haven't changed my lifestyle. Uh, but I'm working on a new novel, um, slowly about real estate in, in Connecticut in the 1980s, uh, trying to build a mall uh, downtown, and no one wants to go downtown. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens with it. Stuff that I really good. Glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, because did I mention that Sterling was trying to be sold by Barnes Noble and that there is no online servicing that accompanies their uh, their their efforts these days? I'm just kidding, only partially. Um, yeah, I, I do have a website, um, and I attempt to blog as frequently as I can, but f- frankly, it's just not. It's just not. You know. Well, as John was saying, it's just, you know, you're trying to figure out how to make a living as a writer and, you know, doing it for free repeatedly over and over and then volunteering to do it for free on your own behalf is really hard to kind of wake up in the morning and be like, yes, I'm going to go write another blog that is not for free. Yeah, by God. And in order for it to be good enough that anyone's going to want to come back, I'm going to have to spend six hours writing it. It's hard. Yeah, it's a a pain in the ass. Um, But... In order to get the word out when you have a new book on the shelves, um, you want to have you want to create that buzz because, frankly, there is a lot of that. There are print reviews, yeah, but online reviews are becoming more and more important to your books. And so, where do where do online reviewers find out about your book? But online, so tweeting and facebooking and having that kind of social media presence, yeah, it's important to me. I, I do put a big emphasis on it. I have a website, and that's about it. I uh, don't do Facebook. I haven't done Twitter or any of that stuff, and you're advised to, but I feel like I spend so much time on the computer as it is that I just don't want to spend any more time there. Um, And my one blog post is about eating a vegetarian diet, and so (laughs) it's not really what you call consistent... uh, You know, yeah, I'm not good at that whole branding thing. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) yes, thank you. Here comes the plug. Um, So, yeah, I'm on all those. I hate doing it, but poetry books. uh, A lot of poet poets out there tonight. A few. Maybe. Yeah, there's one. Woo! Yeah! Um, so this is for everybody else. Uh, <laughs> one of the problems with, uh, well, yeah, one of the problems with uh, uh, getting your, your book published is that you're the marketer in, in, as far as poetry is concerned. There's not any, uh, I mean, unless you're Billy Collins or one of the uh, big dogs who, by the way, have a press run of maybe forty-five thousand. Uh, for so novelists might realize that that's a crazy number. Um, they they make some money, and then that that'll that'll be extended, and they'll have another press run and everything like that. But uh, poets, you do your own marketing, you really do, and so you have to kind of. It, I, as a matter of fact, if you want to uh, go back there and write your uh, email address down next to my book, you'll get just updates all the time. Genius <laughs> updates. Um, but I will say this. So go, as far as poetry presses are concerned, they're angels. They're, they, the things that they do, the fact that they publish poetry, they don't make any money. So Dana Curtis at, at Lixer Press is, real, is a real saint um, what she's doing is difficult, uh, very little monetary reward. Um, and so I would say that if you're not going to buy my book, buy a book of poetry from a small press this year and think of it as like a, uh, 
a uh, tax deduction with benefits. It's kind of like friends with benefits, but um, you get a little... <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Um, but anyway, that's something to keep in mind. As far as the, for the poets in the room, that's the really difficult part is that you're the marketer. And so you, you do have to do the Twitter, Facebook, all, you know, that sort of thing. Or at least that's my experience. Well, thanks. I'll try to temper my ego in answering your question. <laughs> but it was a little bit of everything. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it was an interesting book to write because it was one of the first times that I allowed myself to become a central character in my nonfiction. And that all the research and everything that you would normally include in a, in a kind of a journalistic endeavor was sort of filtered through my own experiences. And, um, and so it was written in kind of like a pseudo memoir kind of way, as well as sort of a, just a plain straightforward narrative nonfiction kind of way. And it was kind of a unique journey for me because I'd, I'd, I'd written first person, um, in my previous books, but in a really kind of limited way, only only in the sense where suddenly I was needed as a character to sort of like boost the either the story or to kind of reinforce a point or something. But in this instance, it was all of the actual information about medical marijuana was coming purely through my own experiences. And so I guess I would say I had the experiences first, and then I went back and then kind of saw where I mean it's actually fairly chronological it's it's a little bit straightforward because I kind of tried to craft it a little bit if you start if you when you start the book I'm talking about a little bit disdainfully about potheads and stoners and you know whatnot and then and then I kind of evolve to the point where pothead becomes almost like an, a term of endearment towards the end of the book um, rather than a term of a somewhat disdainful um, characterization towards the beginning because I was very ambiguous about medical marijuana at the very beginning of this book. And my experiences as I researched it and as I went through it all... Um, I began, <laughs> proud to say, even though I still don't smoke pot. Uh, and that was the other part of that is that I'm, I, I don't I'm a pot smoker at all. I mean, I have, of course, but I, I am not. I wouldn't consider myself a recreational pot smoker. So I'm coming at this almost from a perfectly objective per, per, per point of view, except for the fact that it's not objective because of all the stereotypes that I have that have been kind of implanted in my brain from my own perceptions plus from the media. And then I kind of turn a whole chapter later on once I have this sort of transformation that I go through in the book. I don't know if that answered your question at all. You come close? Okay. Thanks. Can I quote someone on the 
Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, there, there's been a big crackdown by the DEA. Um, in, well, the beginnings of a crackdown here in Colorado. And since I wrote my book, there have been several um, communities in Colorado that have changed their uh, the legal status of dispensaries. And in fact, it was kind of a close call in terms of publication because I live in Fort Collins, which in my view had the, one of the best best run systems in the entire state. And there was a petition, a citizen petition to ban the dispensaries in Fort Collins, and it passed. And the dispensaries are now out of business there. And so I had written, you know, literally in the epilogue, Fort Collins is such a great, you know, example of how the world can go forward. And it was just like, son of a bitch, you fuckers, I can't believe it. <laughs> and so I had to call the public and be like, you got to give me the epilogue back. I have to make a change. And they're like, all right, it's got to be the precise character count, not even word count. But it was just like down to the millimeter. So... You know, I kind of worked it in there. So, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of, there's, it's easy for people who are new to the um, enlightenment about what medical marijuana actually truly is to say like, oh, this is obvious. So the federal government will clearly come along with us and we'll change the laws and life will be good and it'll be all kumbaya, and, you know, for everybody. Um, but what you lose, lose perspective on is the fact that this is like an age-long um, battle that has been going on for a very long time and the government is not going to change its mind and I don't know what is going to actually cause it to change its mind except kind of a mass, you know, kind of groundswell um, and sort of a critical mass kind of a situation so um, so what we're seeing here now since the book's been written is kind of a push and pull and I think you're going to see a little bit of that kind of tidal ebb and flow and acceptance and pullback and acceptance and pullback but you know, momentum seems to be on the side of the people who um, are realizing that medical marijuana is legitimate. Polls continue to show that, uh, you know, it's increasingly in favor for people who want to legalize medical marijuana, even want to legalize marijuana for purely recreational purposes. I think for the first time, the Gallup poll has shown last month that over 50% of Americans polled um, approve of legalization of marijuana for all reasons so so we'll see it's just i think it's just a matter of time it's not a matter of if it'll become legalized it's a matter of when hope that so, helps so how is your back? <laughs> never better never better <laughs> yeah go ahead Not really. I mean, oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> sorry, John. Um, sorry, Seth. Uh, yeah, well, to a degree, it's a little bit easier. You have you have you have some momentum. You have some wind at your back, and all that counts. And it's funny that they don't care about what your story was about, what your book was about, what the topic was. The only thing they seem to look at is the numbers. And whether they can replicate the numbers, and they, how many books did you sell, and what period of time? Therefore, what are they going to offer you in terms of an advance? And my experience, rather than the advance going up and up and up, 
which I kind of naively expected it to be. It went up and then it went up and then it went down and then it went down and down. And it all has to do with, I think, the the resources that they're they're putting. And part of it has to do with Sterling. You know, the fact that I keep coming back to Sterling. They're not the evil, you know, empire, but um, by God, you know, they're owned by Barnes and Noble, and they don't offer my books for sale on Kindles because there's a competition between Barnes and Noble between the Nook and the Kindle. So, yeah, which to me is ridiculous. So. You know, that's necessarily going to impact my sales. Um, this is a much longer issue because the whole idea of digital sales, I think, is is all kind of a whole new horizon for for authors. And the fact that, you know, frankly, you don't have to go through publishers any longer. You can self-publish, and you can do it direct-to-digital. And I've experimented with that a little bit. And, but, you know, the, you have the entire burden of the publicity and, and the marketing goes purely on your shoulders and no one else's. So um, it is a little easier to get at least maybe your name in front of people, to get a phone call, to get an appointment, if you have a book behind behind yourself. But it, it really doesn't, unfortunately, like lead to greater and greater fortunes, I've found. Unless you're John Grisham. Excellent. Um, so let's give these guys another round of applause. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.